This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, March 19th, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. Ten years ago today, the United States invaded Iraq. Much of the intelligence that led up to that invasion was bad. The news media failed to ask relevant questions, and estimates range on the number of deaths at the low end in the tens of thousands. Chris Preble, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, evaluates the Iraq War ten years after it started. Well, I think it all comes down to how much value you put on removing Saddam Hussein from power. And there are some people, even to this day, who even though they're the same people who said the war would be a cakewalk, would cost $50 billion, would cost $200 billion, would be paid for by Iraqi oil revenues, all the things that they said, they would come back and say, it's still worth it. It's still worth a trillion dollars spent and probably close to $3 trillion when all the costs factor in over many, many years of care for the wounded soldiers. They would claim that the number of casualties in the grand scheme of things, either both American casualties and Iraqi casualties, are modest relative to other wars that the United States has fought or relative to what Saddam did to his own people or relative to the Iran-Iraq war. I just think that entire discussion is, is absurd and, and a little offensive. Uh, the fact remains that they sold the war on the basis that it was going to be cheap, inexpensive. That the, that the most important phase of the war would be a brief combat period, that Saddam would be replaced quickly by a friendly person, Democrat supposedly, a, you know, someone who was a friend to the United States but also represented the wishes of the Iraqi people, and that there would be no need for a long-term U.S. presence. It was absurd for anyone to believe that argument, and especially for people who knew about Iraq, who knew about the region, who knew about basic human nature, that when you are an ethnic minority and you are protected by uh, Saddam Hussein or people like him, you fear what comes after, and appropriately so. The worst violence in Iraq was violence by Shiite militias against Sunnis. Horrible reprisals, just vicious uh, uh, slaughter and intimidation, and Many people, frankly, anticipated this, but they were not listened to. Um, and I think of all the, th I mean, you know, Caleb, I've been doing this for 10 years. My, my second day on the job was Colin Powell's speech to the United Nations. So every time I think about it, and I look back at all the things that people got wrong, this is the part that upsets me the most because it's the part that they should have anticipated most clearly. And I can only conclude that those who mischaracterized the nature of Iraqi society uh, to claim that it was not beset by sectarian divisions and ethnic hatreds uh, were lying. Now, I can't prove that, uh, but the other alternative, the other explanation is that they had no idea what they were talking about, so then why were we listening to them in the first place? And it's not clear which is worse. Correct. It's not clear which is worse. So that's why I chose, so I wrote a blog post to commemorate or whatever, mark the 10th anniversary of the war, the start of the war, and I chose instead to focus on those who should know better, did know better, people who were actual experts in the region, who knew about Iraq, who knew about uh, Saddam Hussein, knew about the, uh, the ethnic composition of the country and its history, and who either remained silent or supported the war. Uh, in my mind, they're the ones who perhaps deserve the most um, Scorn is the word I use, I think. Criticism.
Um, some of them have, after the fact, admitted that they made a mistake in not speaking out. And uh, there was, I think, a mindset among many people just in the foreign policy community generally, not Iraq experts, but people who, you know, talk about war and talk about national security and talk about uh, what the United States should do in terms of its foreign policy, who made the decision that the war was going to happen, there was nothing they could do to stop it, so the best they could do is try to make it come out not so bad. Uh, and I think that's the worst case of all. Um, and I think, again, many, many people who are in that position have since um, reconsidered. Some of them have explicitly recanted their support for the war. Others have expressed regret. Uh, and I think all we can hope for in the future is that we've learned something from this horrible episode that we don't make that same mistake again. Chuck Hagel is now U.S. Defense Secretary. Right. What did he learn from the Iraq invasion and its aftermath? Right. Well, of course, Chuck Hagel voted for the war. When the war was voted on the authorization to use force in October of 2002, he was one of those who voted in favor. If you go back and read his speech or listen to it, it could just as easily have been a, a vote supporting a no vote, a, a speech. It could have just as easily have been a speech supporting a no vote. And I think he reflects that perspective or that group of people who just weren't prepared to stand up in October 2002 and speak out against the war knowing that they would be singled out for criticism, especially among Republicans, because it was a Republican president and Republicans in particular are the ones who are supposed to line up uh, behind the war. Soon thereafter, uh, he regretted that decision. And I think he has become perhaps even more vehement in his criticism of the war precisely because he senses that he, that he failed, that he did not do his job. Um, now, his experience with war and his feelings about war, his sentiments about war go back much, much before the vote on Iraq. And he talks about the influence that his service in Vietnam had. Famously, his brother also served in Vietnam um, and the, the lessons that he took away from that conflict. And he carries it forward into Afghanistan too. Many of the same questions that he asked as a senator about Afghanistan and that he asked prior to becoming Secretary of Defense suggests that he has some very grave reservations about that war and about whether that ever can be justified on a pure cost-benefit basis. Um, the bottom line is this. You only place U.S. troops in harm's way when it is absolutely essential to U.S. national security, when there is a clear and achievable military mission, when you have public support for the mission, and when it's the last resort, when we've exhausted all their options. And he understands that. He has said that. Um, but and and. Incredibly, you look at the way he was treated in the, in the nomination process and even before that, to, to even ask such questions just invites just uh, incredible criticism from the national security establishment still, in spite of everything that's happened over the last 10 years. We now have a president who has, uh, according to you and others uh, here at the Cato Institute, has engaged in war mm -hmm. in Libya yes. and elsewhere right. without public support. Uh, without exhausting other options, right. uh, without seeking Congress's permission uh, to do so, and yet uh, the public, I think, is is pretty blasé about that. They are. I, I think these wars are not popular, but they're not seen as particularly costly, and so you can get away with waging a war and having people not feel as though they're paying a price. That's one of the down. You know, that's one of the drawbacks of relying on 
technology that does not expose our troops to great risk, does not expose certainly American citizens to great risk. Um, but it does continue the march in the direction of the unfettered executive that can do pretty much whatever it wants, does not have to go to Congress to authorize such things, it has the power. In, you know, they possess the power now, they don't have to raise the necessary, you know, man and materials, et cetera, which is what the founders envisioned many, many years ago. Um, on the other hand, I do think that the reaction to the use of drone warfare, especially in the context of the rights of U.S. citizens, both here in the United States and abroad, has invited some additional scrutiny from not the usual suspects. Again, you have Republicans who are going to criticize Obama, some of them have very, been very supportive and have been, you know, have said that the president, again, should get to do these things, but many Republicans have, have reacted to this. And a number of liberal Democrats who have never been happy with it uh, are kind of coming out of the woodwork and admitting, you know, they're not, they're not comfortable where this is going. Um, war should never be easy. Uh, it's never easy, of course, especially if you're on the receiving end, right? But uh, we, the, the fact remains, the United States is capable, we have the capability to launch major military operations against any country in the world at minimal risk to the United States itself, to the American people, and only slightly greater risk to the U.S. troops that are involved. Um, and that's the reality of the wars we're in. And I think, if anything, because there is this disconnect between what the public pays and what you know we're engaged in around the world, which is why I think as a matter of principle, members of Congress should assert their authority more forcefully than they have up to this point. Chris Preble is Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.